So the Wirecard story took some unexpected turns. And the more I reported, the weirder things started to get. So we realised there were hackers trying to break into our emails. And there were private detectives running around following people. And then we started to realise that this company was maybe involved in more things than we had first realised. This is The Talent Show, a new podcast series from FT Talent, a hub of innovation from the Financial Times. It's hosted by under-30s for the under-30s around the world. This second series is about all the aspects the FT organization is covering today, from editorial to development, from data to talent. I am Virginia Stagni, and this is a guide we designed to inspire you to be the one driving innovation and change. Welcome to the show. Another episode of our talent show by FT Talent here at the Financial Times podcast studio in London at Bracken House. And today I'm enjoying the company of Dan McCrum, that is our investigative reporter here at the Financial Times. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? Good afternoon. I'm great, thanks. Thanks for having me along. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Dan is, uh, is the author of Money Man, the financial thriller that has been uh, um, unveiling and uh, giving us all the insights of the Wirecard uh, scandal that has been inspiring a lot of other pieces of uh, creative media. And I will talk a bit more about that. And Dan is an investigative reporter at the Financial Times. Uh, would you like to tell us a bit more about your job? What does it entail? and um, uh, how did you get there? Absolutely, because I think I've got one of the best jobs in the world. Here we go. <laughs> I mean, being a journalist is fun. And really, being an investigative journalist is just like being a normal reporter, except with the luxury of time. You get a bit more slack to dig deeper, sort of really try and get behind what's going on, sort of getting to the bottom of the story. That's very interesting. And, and how did you get there? And, and how did you find that, you know, this uh, um, investigative angle on reporting was your thing? So I started writing for the FT's blog, FT Alphaville, way back in about 2014. And the blog was founded and run by this guy, Paul Murphy, who's a terrific editor. And, you know, his approach is find good journalists and let them follow their nose. And so he just said to me, write about what you find interesting which I did and I tried to. And it turned out I found companies with quirky accounting who were maybe up to no good, seemed pretty interesting. All right. And it was, I got to know these bunch of characters called short sellers. They're these people in financial markets who are betting that, I guess things are gonna go wrong. That a company is overvalued, that maybe it's not quite what it seems. So, as I was writing those kinds of stories, I didn't really set out to say, I'm going to be an investigative journalist now. It just sort of happened. I found myself digging into things which other people really weren't, that took a little bit more knowledge or time or effort. And, you know, we can dress it up into something very fancy or, you know, it sounds very serious. Invested. I can't even say the word. I mean, uh, investigative journalism. But, you know, some of the time it's literally just going and checking the facts. Company has said, this is happening. Well, if you go and have a look, is it really? 
Um, I'm very interested in understanding how much of your background needs to be in finance and uh, good understanding of numbers to do your job. Not at all. I mean, it helps if you're trying to do financial journalism. But there's plenty of people at the FT who come from a wide variety of backgrounds. And it just so happened I went and got a bit of experience in a bank first. So I learned a little bit about numbers, you know, had a vague idea how companies worked. But I just really wanted to be a journalist. And, you know, when before I started, I also found it slightly baffling. You know, this idea of where do the stories come from? Where do you go and get them? And part of it is just learning the craft is, I mean, you mentioned that becoming an expert. And sometimes you do. But that's sort of a byproduct of what you're doing, which is really going to find people who know about the subject and ask them some questions and take that bit of information and then go and talk to someone else. And how does your typical day look like when you start um, maybe an investigation? Let's say that, you know, like you got a, a new interesting case or something that looks, you know, that you want to go and dig deeper. How does your day then look like? Um, you mean aside from drinking coffee and bantering on Twitter? So one of the wonderful, amazing things about being a journalist is people come to you. Um, I mean, I've been very lucky that the Wirecard scandal and everything which happened, that has sort of put a flag up that says the Financial Times is interested in doing difficult, complicated stories. You know, we're in the business of exposing wrongdoing. And so what that means is, you know, people go, I've discovered something bad's happening. Who can I tell about it? And they just get in touch. And it's this amazing feeling when you pick up the phone, who's this calling, and someone just tells you, not necessarily the whole story, but the germ of what might be an incredible story. And that's when you sort of put the phone down and do a little jig of, oh, this could be a good one. How do you trust and verify that source? What's the process you go through? It depends. So character is important. Who is this person I'm talking to? What are their motivations? So everyone you encounter, particularly when it's to do with money and finance, they have an angle, right? You know, management want the share price to go up. It would be a very simple one. So you have to be mindful of that when you're interviewing someone saying, our company's brilliant. We've got all these amazing things to do. And it's like, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? And then you encounter people who are disgruntled employees. They've been fired for some reason and they're angry about it. And sometimes that's great. That motivates a lot of whistleblowers, people who have tried to do the right thing and found themselves in trouble because of it. And I think part of what you're doing is you're assessing the person. Is what they're telling me true? Do the facts add up? Is their story, you know, coherent? Is there something they're not telling me? Because a lot of people not necessarily lie, but if someone is leaving out some quite important details, then you're like, oh, well, I'm not getting the whole story here. And it's, I don't know, it's one of those things you get a feel for, for talking to people. And I, you know, I wouldn't profess to be an expert. You know, there's all sorts of great liars out there. 
but you also do, you know, you know when you're talking to someone who has the real deal. How did you develop this side of uh, your expertise? Did you uh, study something specifically or you think it's something in your DNA? That might be something very interesting for someone that wants to go into investigative journalism as our younger audiences. So I always liked asking questions and debating. And so I studied economics and politics. And the economics gave me a bit of an understanding of and I wouldn't go so far as business, but, you know, numbers, demand, a lot of it is really human behavior. And I then got a bit of experience in business. But really, my theory of humanity is that everyone is sort of bluffing. You know just enough to get the job done. And quite often, if you probe deeper, people are like, well, I don't need to know that material. It's like when you do an exam and you, you learn everything to pass the exam and then, you know, most of it falls out of your brain because you don't ever use it. And so journalism is kind of a craft. It, you know, it gets dressed up as a profession, but you don't need any qualifications. It's literally talk to people, find things out, write them down. Um, hopefully in an order which people will understand where you put the most important thing first but there isn't much more to it than that, you know, in, in the simple version of it. And so I sort of learned about numbers by doing. And so I would only ever learn enough to write the story. It's not like I sat down and said, right, I'm going to become an expert in accounting or balance sheets. And I'm really not, by the way. Okay. But what I would do is, I would go and find the experts. So I would talk to, you know, stock market investors, these characters who work for hedge funds, and they would sit down and say, oh, I've got this theory about, you know, a company or a person. And if it's complicated and involves lots of numbers and things like that, then I'd sit there and scratch my head and go, wow, this is quite difficult, isn't it? Could you say that again slowly? <laughs> I'm going to open in a second the, the drawer of the wirecard scandal. But how do you structure the work? Let's say that, you know, you're building the story. You said that you have a bit more time because you're a bit different from, you know, like uh, doing breaking news in a certain sense. You have, you know, you can do research, etc. So you said something very important. Two sources that does say the same thing, I guess, right? And uh, what's the process in the newsroom flow? I mean, you have a story, you propose it to the editor. Can you just tell us a bit more about like, what's really the, the supply chain in a certain sense to get into the final uh, publishing of a piece? So the FT is quite a reporter-driven place. Occasionally you'll get an editor who will say, go away and write about this company or this situation or, you know, something big is happening in the world, we need something on it. But most of the time, really, it's reporters knowing what sort of stories we're interested in and going and getting them. So you go away and get a tip and you look into it and you find out more details and you sort of reach that point where you're confident that you have a story and then you tell the editors and say, I've got the story coming. And then you bang out a draft. Um, you know, it could be as short as 400 words, 
could be several times that. And then you get into the process of, you know, you give it to an editor, they tell you what they think, you know, here are the holes in it, here's what's wrong. And then um, it can very quickly go from, okay, the story is good, an editor has read it, let's put it on the website. And, you know, it'll go through another sort of layer or two of people checking and things like that. Um, but then, the, you know, the investigations, that process is sort of can be a lot longer. And it's sort of you, you start with, you know, a tip. Um, so, so the Wirecard one would be a good example to talk about. Let's go. That's what we have been waiting so, for. <laughs> so, I mean, th this turned into a six-year investigation, but it began with a conversation I had with an Australian hedge fund manager. And he just said to me, hey, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? And I'm like, yeah, this sounds great. And it turned out he was talking about this funny little company that did something to do with payments. Uh, it called itself the European PayPal, and its name was Wirecard. And it turned out there were two theories about what was happening at the company. Its numbers were too good to be true. There were a bunch of other companies doing similar businesses, but Wirecard was growing faster than they were and was making more money doing the same thing. That's weird, right? How are they doing it? So one theory was that Wirecard was laundering money for all sorts of nasty businesses online. The other one was, this is accounting fraud. They're just making it up, pretending their business is better than it really is to steal money. How do you protect yourself from a legal perspective? The, we have this uh, brilliant in-house lawyer called Nigel Hansen, and he keeps us out of trouble. So if you have a legally sensitive story, you go and discuss it with Nigel first, and he will tell you, well, these are the problems, this is how we might tone down the language, or this is, you know, sometimes it's just a case of, are we being clear about what we're saying here? And if we had to stand up in court, could we prove it? You know, it's those sort of standards, because you can't, you can't sort of make things up and print them in a newspaper because you end up in court being sued for lots of money. Have you ever felt threatened from a personal perspective for what you were reporting? So the Wirecard story took some unexpected turns. And the more I reported, the weirder things started to get. So we realized there were hackers trying to break into our emails. And there were private detectives running around following people. And then we started to realize that this company was maybe involved in more things than we had first realized. So we've been warned about gangsters, but a key guy was by day this sort of German finance executive. But in his spare time, he was hanging out with Russian mercenaries. Um, he took a holiday in Syria where he was strolling around with Russian troops. Um, and... Another of his friends used to be the head of intelligence for Libya. And so when you start to realize these are the guy's friends, you do start to feel a little bit nervous. And I really did. We were very concerned about surveillance 
and there was never an explicit threat. And I kind of assumed that you get a journalistic invulnerability because, let's face it, if a journalist's legs are broken, the police will care about it in a way that they really don't about esoteric financial crime. So I kind of felt protected, but at the same time, it became this very large story and billions and billions of pounds were at stake. And you have these moments, you know, I'd be cycling along in the dark with this voice in the back of my head saying, if you get hit by a bus by now, it will be very convenient for a lot of people. I think it's um, it's very interesting to see this as well from a media standpoint, the perspective of the Warcar, the scandal turned into a Netflix um, documentary. Um, how do you feel about that? How did you go about that? Absolutely amazing. So... Wirecard was this big investigation which took a very long time and got quite scary and difficult and stressful. But what drove us along, me particularly and my boss, Paul Murphy, who sort of worked with me all the time, was this sense that one day we are going to be able to tell this incredible story and people aren't going to believe it. It's so mad and fantastical and crazy. So to be able to take, you know, some stories in a newspaper and write a book about it and then turn that into a documentary, which, you know, with the power of Netflix, people all over the world can see. I mean, that's incredibly satisfying and just a wonderful, fun thing to do. You know, go out and make a film. And um, from a process perspective, like um, I, I'd love to see the behind the scenes of this. Like, uh, how did you manage the kind of like uh, um, um, your kind of reporting, and what Netflix needed to do a bit more from a creative side to make this a bit more digestible for not just the FT reader, accessible as well. So one of the things that I learned was the difference between a newspaper story, which is really about what are the new facts? What are you telling us? And you can boil that down to quite a simple thing. But if you want to draw people in and tell this big epic tale of fraud and finance and money laundering and skullduggery, it's all about character. Who are the people? Why do we care about them? You know, who are the bad guys? I mean, it helped that we had this sort of, you know, James Bond villain character on the other side who's running around with Russian spies. So what you're trying to do in sort of, if you want to hold people's attention for 90 minutes, then you've got to make it interesting, right? And we had a bunch of funny people, weird people, and, you know, outright dodgy people, and that helped. So... Um, if you wouldn't mind, Dan, I would be so interested in getting some tips from you for our younger, um, I would love to be an investigative reporter. Uh, what is your advice for people that are trying to pursue a career in your space? Absolute number one piece of advice for being a journalist is practice. It's a craft that you learn by doing. So write stories for whoever you can whenever you can, and you will get better. 
Do you work with uh, young reporters in your team or uh, specifically with younger people? Uh, yes, we've got a bunch of grads at the FT um, who are usually very impressive. You look at their CVs and you're like, God, I'm glad I'm not competing with these guys anymore. <laughs> and they are generally very keen and um, full of brilliant story ideas. And I think you asked about our team. I mean, on the investigations team, we have seven people all doing slightly different investigations. Um, I think we have our own sort of areas of specialty or expertise and we all sort of lean on each other. But we also have this saying, all our stories are connected. And what we keep finding is you do an investigation over here and you're digging away and you uncover some bad stuff. And then a little bit later, one of your colleagues is doing something way over there, completely separate. But then the same names start to crop up and the same people and it keeps happening again and again. And so you sort of discover there are these, I guess, networks that sort of are in and under and through the respectable finance and business that we know. And uh, um, very last question. Um, writing Money Man, it's a completely different process writing a book, I guess, from being a reporter and writing for a newspaper. Um, how long did it take and um, how did you need to tweak your expertise, your language, your way of working? Writing a book takes a lot of time, dedication, and it can be a very frustrated process. That's what I've experienced just writing a very small book. But how did you go about that with a daily job like yours? So I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets when I say writing a book is quite hard. <laughs> and even though I had done all the reporting for years beforehand, it still took me a year. And I had some great advice from colleagues. I had a terrific editor at Penguin. And I think one of the best pieces of advice I had was it's not about the numbers or the money trails. It's about the character. And actually, my editor said to me, what you should do is go and read a very good book called Red Notice uh, by Bill Browder, which is all about his battle with the Russian state. And it has this cat and mouse quality. And so as I was trying to write the Wirecard story, I had that very much in mind. So I wanted to try and convey this sense of I was trying to get to the bottom of it and they're trying to stop me. And so we sort of hit on this structure of we would have a we would have a I hit on this structure of we would have a chapter from my perspective and from the outside looking in and then we would flip and have a chapter from the inside what was going on and we would sort of go backwards and forwards in the narrative to try and tell the story with these just ridiculous and bizarre characters. And that was what I was trying to do was I had to go back and re-report everything. And it's like, okay, no, we don't care about the numbers anymore, but tell me what was happening in the room? Who was there? You know, what was the meeting like? Everyone was smoking? Okay, weird, brilliant. What was the dog called? It's those sort of details that, you know, you need to bring to hold people's attention for a book-length narrative, which is very different from a newspaper story. 
I said last question, but I just had one very last one before we get our two amazing challengers in the studio. Have you ever used the chat GPT? Have you tried it? I, I've been playing around with Midjourney, okay. which is kind of staggering. And everyone is getting very excited about these new AI chatbots, which can pass off pretty well as human writing. Although I think one of the things that you keep seeing is lots of people in different professions, journalists, doctors, academics, try ChatGTP and say, oh, well, well, it's not good enough to do my job yet. But everyone else, they're in real trouble. <laughs> so there is an awful lot of hype around what the AI is going to do. And I think, you know, like all technologies, what we actually end up using it for and how it integrates with the way we work, live, will probably completely surprise us when we look back in 10 years. So you would bet that you would use it in the near future? I think it probably will start to creep in in all sorts of ways. But I mean, I'm already using artificial intelligence when I write emails. You know, we have corporate Gmail and it just pops up little prompts. You know, ah, I see you're writing to this person and it just goes, I think this is what you're going to say, isn't it? And often that's quite useful. Uh, one of the best use cases for these AI chatbots that I saw is, I mean, it was a guy on Twitter saying, I wanted to shout at my colleague for doing a bad job. So I asked the chatbot to write it in a work appropriate way for me. And it did present a fully formed, quite nice, polite email that would be acceptable to send. And so maybe there is a way to do that. But then it kind of, you get into this strange arms race in which, um, you know, it's a bit like when people play Scrabble online and they start cheating by using the bots yeah. to like find the best word. And you end up, it's basically two computers are playing against each other, intermediated by humans. So <laughs> you end up in this strange way that we're all just sort of using computers. Uh, the computers basically will just start talking to each other. Thank you so much, Dan, for all your amazing insights. This has been amazing to listen to you, really. Thank you so much for sharing all your insights. Now we get our challengers, Ethan and Anaman. So, Ethan and Aman, thank you so much for joining us. So, Ethan, over to you. Thank you so much for having us. So, my name is Ethan. I'm currently a student at the LSE. We're both here actually to represent the LSE Business and Investment Group, which is the largest career-focused society at the LSE and probably the most active across the UK. So I actually run the speaker events there where we have speakers, outstanding speakers like yourself to come in, share their insights, uh, talk about their career path and give some advice to some of the student body here at the LSE. Mm -hmm. Hi, hi, my name is Aman. I'm also a student at the LSE studying maths and econ. I'm like the current vice president of the society. I usually do most of the internal events. So teaching younger students technical skills and doing events with like networking people in the industry. So it's quite a pleasure to meet you again, Dan. Yeah, thank you, guys. So, Ethan, what's your question for Dan? Absolutely. So given the complex and opaque nature of uh, the financial reporting, um, what is what you think the appropriate balance between investigative journalism and regulatory oversight to combat financial fraud? Well, I think those are two completely separate things. And 
the reason that there's a window for the sort of investigative journalism that we're trying to do is often because the regulators are a bit incompetent and they don't ever really discover the frauds. So um, I think the overlap is they're terrible at it and we have a go. Okay, and do you think maybe in the future there's potential to collaborate or work together to try and uncover these frauds? No, that never works. Really? The, yeah, so my boss, Paul Murphy, there's a story in the book Money Man about um, how Paul got to know his bandit sources. Okay. And the roots of that is he was trying to uncover an insider trading ring. And he had the whole thing cold. He knew all the people involved. He knew what was going on. He had details of people crossing borders with cash in carrier bags. And it was this network of tipsters, bankers, art dealers, all sorts of people across the continent who were trading on stocks. And when he tried to publish it, he went to the lawyers of the magazine who got the newspaper he was working for then, and they kind of made sort of small strangled noises because there was no way he could print it. They would get completely sued. And so he then went to try and interest the FCA in it, or what was the equivalent of the N then FCA. And they didn't do anything with it either. And also they weren't interested in cooperating because there were aspects of the story which a regulator might have been able to find out stuff. And, you know, Murphy's turned around and said, well, if they're... Um, if I can't expose them, I might as well try and turn them into sources. And that's how he began to get to know these sort of characters that he calls sort of the financial bandits. And you see that a time and again. Like, we do different things. We don't trust each other for a variety of good reasons. So the idea of sort of journalists working with regulators is just a non-starter. Aman, your question. Okay, so my question stems from, like, despite the concerns, despite the concerns raised by you, and other analysts, like companies that still kept pouring money into like Wirecard, so like SoftBank poured in 900 million euros. What do you think investors, why do you think they were so slow to respond? And what do you think could be done to improve like investor education and like awareness of potential risks? So I vividly remember the morning when um, my editor Paul Murphy walks across the newsroom and he says, Dan, you do realise Soft in the Head Bank have just bet a billion dollars that you're wrong. And we were kind of baffled by what is going on. Like, what do they see that we don't see? And they made a number of mistakes, which, you know, lots of investors did. So in the Wirecard case, um, you know, to begin with, Wirecard played down the amounts. And so people focused on those because they're like, oh, well, it's not material what the FT has printed because they looked at the numbers when really they should have been going... Why on earth are people in the finance team faking documents? And what complex frauds like this exploit is that sort of inherent level of trust that sort of permeates society and allows us to get a lot of business done. So if you're trying to go about your life as a businessman, you generally assume that the other people across the table from you aren't crooks. Because if you did, you would have to spend an awful amount of time that would be wasted checking everything to make sure that you weren't being ripped off. And that's really efficient. But 
that creates this sort of space for the fraudster to come in and completely rip people off because you just don't see it coming because you're not expecting, you know, the businessmen in suits on the other side of the table to be criminal. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you, man. But above all, thank you so much, Dan, for being with us. This has been really, really enjoying, enjoyable, and I loved these episodes. And thank you so much for your transparency and giving all uh, your oh, terrific. insights. Terrific. Thank you very much. And great questions, guys. Thank, thank you. you. So thank you so much for having us. This has been The Talent Show, which is produced by the FT Talent Team, Aya Al-Shihabi, and me, Virginia Stani. Our podcast producer, editor and sound engineer is Arturo Ochoa, and our social media producer is Letizia Clementi. Our music is by Dennis Kishuk. Check out all of the Talent Show episodes at fttalent.ft.com, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and follow FT Talent on socials for updates. Until next time, and keep listening. Keep listening.